Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast for August 2019. I'm one of the editors at the journal, Mark Freeman, and I'm joined today by my wonderful co-host, writer, academic and programmer, Kirsten Stevens. How are you doing? Pretty good. Excellent. And because we've got a, such a bumper show today, we've actually got two people in our rather crowded third chair. Uh, we have Arena Hirschner, who's a festival director and an academic. Hello, Arena. Thanks for joining Hello. us. And we've also got writer, critic, and incredible filmmaker, Luke McCarthy. How are you? Hello. I'm very good. Thank you. All right. Thanks for coming. And it's going to be, as I say, a really huge show today because we're covering a lot of ground. This month's show, we're looking at what is supposed to be, apparently, the second to last directorial effort from Quentin Tarantino. It's called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It is a film about Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio hanging out in LA and finding themselves, unfortunately, intertwined with the infamous Manson family murders. We're then going to move on to MIF 2019, where Arena and Luke will give us a rundown on all that screened and everything that mattered at this year's Melbourne International Film Festival. And then we're going to move on to discussing two documentaries that focus on one of the more recent shameful episodes in Australian history, the racial vilification of Indigenous AFL superstar Adam Goods. The two documentaries are called The Final Quarter and The Australian Dream, and they take two very distinct approaches to telling the story of what happened to Goods just a few years ago. And that'll be a really interesting discussion on football, the media, and a nation's perception of itself. We will end, of course, with our recommendations for the month of August. And in our bonus segment for patrons of Senses of Cinema, we're going to be talking about the life and career of the recently departed Peter Fonda. So now let's start the show. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is Tarantino's penultimate film, if you want to believe his own claims, and stars Leonardo DiCaprio as Rick Dalton, an action TV star on The Wayne, and his relationship with Cliff Booth, his stunt double, played by Brad Pitt. Both are past their prime, their reputations are tarnished, and the only thing it appears they've got going for them are the times they spend in Dalton's house, ominously located on Cielo Drive in the Los Angeles hills. It's this fateful location that draws them closer to the shocking true events of August 1969, where the followers of Charles Manson murdered actor Sharon Tate and four others in a killing spree that continued at a second location the following night. I think it's fair to say that this film feels at least superficially significantly different from what we might expect from a Tarantino film. All right, Kirsten, what did you think of it? I was really underwhelmed. Oh, okay. Yeah. Look, I, I went in really wanting to love this film because I, I absolutely love that era of Hollywood and I love that kind of nostalgia and, you know, someone like Tarantino, we come to expect that he has such a wealth of knowledge about cinema and there would have been so many references and insider oh, knowledge. There were references. There were. <laughs> but what underwhelmed me was the fact that it was just references. It was just quotation. It was just homage. And there wasn't really anything holding it together aside from that really quite self-indulgent, look how much I know, look how much I can tell you about this era, look how I can play with style or reference different films and actors and moments. But there just wasn't enough substance behind that and enough wit. It was a little too fanboy for me without it being adding some kind of critical or insightful element. Right. Arena, how did you find it? I'm completely with Kirsten on this. Okay. I felt it was self-indulgent. I felt it was very fragmented. I felt it was a lot of stories together, which can be fine, can work really well, but I felt they weren't tied together in any meaningful, witty way. It went up and down. It ended. It started again. It ended again. It played with lots of self-references to other of his films. 
And I just constantly felt like maybe it's me. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I don't get it. But yeah. I don't think it was me. I think what Kirsten said, there is a reference and then it's left hanging. It's not picked up again. Yeah, and, and I guess my position is that I feel the same way, but I think I liked it more than mm -hmm. YouTube, but I didn't love it. Mm. Um, I think it, it's... I find Tarantino sometimes really irritating because he is like, I like films and here's the scene that from this film. Like, like good on you. I like films too. Um, and like, well done. And it sometimes has that sort of level of blankness and kind of, as you say, that sort of fairly obnoxious fanboy, like, I totally watched, you know, action films from the 60s. Like, well, good for you. Like I did too, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but at the same time, there is a style and a craft to the things that he does that I think sells them. I think one of the problems with this, as you're suggesting, Arena, is there's a kind of blankness to the references. And, and I think partly it's purely, I love these films, I love this period, and it's a kind of, you know, a love letter to all the things that he liked. And some of that is interesting, but it ultimately doesn't mean anything. And I found some of those references ultimately a little bit irritating and annoying because it's two hours and 40 minutes long. Um, you know, you can still love the 60s and you can still love, you know, the action films and you can still love all of these things and you can do it in about two hours. So that there was that sense of it being engaging, interesting, and also kind of obnoxiously indulgent, I think. I mean, having said that I had, I was underwhelmed by this film and I had problems with it, there were moments in there that I really enjoyed. I was not expecting to like DiCaprio's performance as much as I did. Um, there, I've, A few of the films I've seen of DiCaprio's lately have fallen a little flat with me. Um, and I thought he did a really good job playing uh, Rick Dalton, um, particularly in the scenes that they were shooting of that Western with the little girl. Um, there were some really, really good moments there and that kind of self-reflection. And this was probably the bits of the films I enjoyed the most, but also where it highlighted what my issue was with the film, which is Tarantino was almost like he couldn't decide whether or not this was a homage to the period or a critique of the issues with stardom and fading stardom that were going on um, with his characters. It was torn a little bit between just pure admiration and trying to be a little bit more critical, and he just he didn't really navigate that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the film sort of struggles a little bit in terms of... I agree with you about DiCaprio. I thought he was incredible, because it's a really tricky thing that he's trying to do, this kind of fading star who's still trying to maintain this kind of machismo nonsense and he's really just the guy who wants to drink the margarita out of the blender rather than kind of do anything sort of stylish with it he's kind of a bit of a lost boy um and the point indeed when he ends up uh, moving to italy to shoot um the film with who is it is it um it's the kind of um sergio leone um kind of it was a spaghetti western sort of thing. You know, that has that wonderful sense of him kind of slowly sliding mm -hmm. down further and further and further. I think that's a really complex and fantastic performance. I love him and Brad Pitt together. I think they're really, really fun. I was glad Brad Pitt wasn't doing the too goofy stuff, which I like, but it didn't belong in the film. But in the end, you know, I think that it, 
I don't know. It sort of fell into kind of two halves and that whole concentration on, you know, here's the violence that is perpetuated by, you know, DiCaprio on screen and the way that we respond to it and him being the actor that's failing and then matching that with the growing threat of the almost performative violence of the Manson killers, um, which starts to take over the second half of the film. I mean, I, I found that an interesting structure, but a bit like, both of you, I sort of went, so, but what does it actually mean? Mm -hmm. Like, what's the actual purpose for it? Yep. I'm enjoying it. I liked watching it. And I came away thinking there were a bunch of scenes I liked. Um, and I don't know that it meant anything other than he really likes that era. Yeah. Yeah. There were scenes that I liked. I really enjoyed the Bruce Lee scene, for example. Oh, I, I hated it. Oh, you scene. hated it? Yes. I really liked it. I really liked him. I liked, you know, the leather gloves. I liked the performance of it. I liked that fight that they had it was extremely performative yeah. and unrealistic and but I liked it yeah I thought it was really yeah I enjoyed that scene and then I was waiting for it to be picked up again I was waiting for that red thread to go through and the references maybe not only to other films but then at some point the references to the film itself yeah. that would have created a bit of a closer web within the film yeah which does come back to the fact that it is episodic and pastiche and you know it, I mean I, I I thought that that whole Bruce Lee thing was just obnoxious I just hated it it's one of the the least the things that I like the least but you know it as you say it's sort of here's Bruce Lee let's have a bit of a fight moving on you know the, the kind of randomness of you know one of the things that disturbed me a lot was the suggestion that Brad, Brad Pitt murdered his wife yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. he might have been a killer Moving well, on. And it's completely <laughs> inconsequential, yes. right? It's left yes. hand so this, there. So this was yeah. probably the thing that struck me the most uh, was the casual violence towards women that was throughout the film. Now, you know, it's a Tarantino film. I wasn't going in not expecting, you know, the scene that happens at the end yes. and the level of violence that was there. But I had a few issues with it, which was that it's far less intelligent than a lot of his fight scenes have been. Um, you know, my, my favourite Tarantino film is Death Proof, so it's not like I'm squeamish about the that sort of over-the-top violence. Um, and maybe my issue with the violence against women sort of reflects the fact that my favourite part of Death Proof was really where you had the three girls beating up the um, stunt driver. Yeah. But what that Brad Pitt, the suggestion that he killed his wife and that only being used to kind of make him seem a more dangerous character and less friendly... Um, and then the scene at the end where the violence was, you were just seeing like, you know, heads being bashed into walls over and over again for no real purpose. It wasn't an exciting fight scene to watch. You know, certainly in terms of Tarantino's work, there's been much more well-crafted fight scenes. You know, the performativity of the Bruce Lee scene was at least um, sort of more exciting than that final where it was just a lot of crotch shots of a dog attacking and yeah. a head being pushed into different objects. It was, yeah. it just, I don't know, it, it didn't justify for me both that subplot of um, the wife's murder or just the way that the camera focused in. And particularly in today's climate, that it just seemed too disposable, the violence against women in this film, without anything being put there to make it more reasonable to make it 
or not even reasonable is not quite the right word, but at least uh, make more sense within the plot of the film. Yeah. Um, and there just wasn't that. It was just kind of, now we have this scene. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, that, that annoyed me quite a bit. Yeah. And how did you feel about Margot Robbie um, as Sharon Tate? Because, I mean, I know some of the criticisms have been she doesn't do anything. No, and she, she doesn't. doesn't. Yeah. Like, she really doesn't. And I loved everything that she was in. I loved that whole, all of the sequences with her in it. I, I actually really, that was almost the thing that I loved the most about the film. I think she does it really well. Mm. She does nothing really well. Yes. No? She has, I think what annoys me is it's a very masculine film. She doesn't have agency. She doesn't do anything. And she sits in the cinema watching herself, being so excited to see herself on screen. It's a nice scene in itself. Yeah. yeah. And she's good at it. But I still feel like, why not give her something to say? <laughs> yeah. Uh, why doesn't she have some, anything to say about it? Why doesn't she have any agency? She doesn't make a single decision apart from spending an afternoon in a cinema to watch herself. Yeah. And I feel that's all the women in it. And I think this is where, I, I have to admit, um, it always bugs me a little bit with Tarantino when he plays with history. I am a historian, so it always yeah. just slightly irks me. <laughs> yeah. Um, but putting that aside, a lot of the Sharon Tate scenes in the film have significance because you're expecting her to die at the end. And so, okay, if you're not going to follow through on that, then do something else with her as well. Like there, there could have been a payoff at the end, you know, she could have gotten involved on the fight or something like that, that would have made it still have a little bit more purpose. But as soon as you take that off the table... Then you look back at those scenes and they really have no significance because you're getting to know this character just by watching her do nothing. And that's that's all it ends up being is she just does nothing yeah, in I mean, Hollywood I, in the know, 60s. Maybe in the end I end up sort of assigning her more significance than she deserves because, I mean, she literally walks around looking happy. Mm-hmm. Um, she dances a couple of times. She has a conversation... Um, she does have a conversation with a somebody with Jay Sebring, I think, yeah. at one point, and she goes to the movies and she does that great dance with the Mama Cass fill-in, which is great, um, and that's pretty much it. Um, and yet, every time she was on screen, there is this—the the, it's the, the kind of the hope of the '60s that she's so emblematic of the way that period turned incredibly dark, and it was kind of you know part of the the, the death of that whole era, you know, of this kind of free love, we all care about each other and, you know, she ends up obviously being murdered Um, and this film is in love with her and and loves what she represented, the the beauty, the the innocence, the the happiness, the new life, all of this sort of stuff that she did represent and I just, I loved how respectful, I suppose, it was of her, even though she doesn't do anything, because I think she's not there as a character. She's there as an emblem. She's a symbol. And that's all she is. And I think that there, you know, you can make an argument that there are problems with that. But maybe so the film isn't you, about her. How did you feel about the end where what Loved made it. her such a, a symbol is yeah. just kind of, you know, I, I wanted more. I, yeah. As I say, once you put aside qualms about, okay, you, you're going to change history hmm. in the, the plot of this film, fine. I wanted something slightly more from that. If she survived, yeah, what would that mean? What would that mean? Yeah. And it, it was just there wasn't really anything there for me. It just wasn't quite 
finished yeah. as well. And I it? think that, you know, the, the way that he plays around with events and shifts events around and kind of changes some elements and stuff, um, which is, is something that he's, you know, played around with before. I mean, I suppose that that left me, you know, this is a miserable, terrible story of great tragedy and awful kind of abuse and tragedy. And the fact that you walk out of that with a sense of, like, things have changed, everything's gone bad, the 60s had this ugly, brutal, dark side, but I can at least walk out feeling that not all of it was terrible, that there was something hopeful and wonderful and beautiful about that era is, I suppose, where I walked away with it. But but I don't know that it's so strong that I'm like, and this is a masterpiece. It's like, well, I, I walked out happier than I thought I would. And, you know, I guess I was prepared to take that. Um I also just want to briefly talk about the stuff that occurs at the Spahn Ranch, which is such an interesting sequence where Brad Pitt ultimately is lured by one of the Manson girls um, to the Spahn Ranch, um, where he, you know, in another cameo, he is Bruce Dern for like five minutes. Um, that was a sequence that I loved to bits. You know, there are some that I just got sick of the repetition. Um, but that whole sequence is beautifully tense and very, very kind of... Um, you know, exciting in a kind of creepy, almost like a haunted house kind of way. Loved that whole sequence very much, just with having all of the the Manson girls and a couple of the techs and, and Clem kind of standing at the side, just watching him walk into that room. Um, it was one of those sequences where I was like, I'm getting a bit bored with the repetition of, okay, we're failing, we're failing, we're failing. Oh, this scene is jumping out as... An incredibly masterful um, piece of filmmaking. I loved that scene to bits. Um, but maybe I'm the one who's kind of more on the upside of mm. of this. Seems like it. Yeah, I. I think it's too long. It is too it's long. Way too long. Yeah. And my feeling is that having had Tarantino say that this is his penultimate film, I'm kind of going good. Yeah. I'm happy for him to move on. Well, he's saying it's his penultimate film. He's not leaving Hollywood altogether. He's talking about, you know, potentially giving up directing feature-length films, moving into television, moving into other forms. So it's not like we're going to see the end of Tarantino's work, but I think if his films are going to be of this calibre rather than what he was doing earlier in his career, then I'm happy for him to find to find a new uh, area to move into. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you want to leave a... An opinion on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, just head over to our Facebook page um, at facebook.com slash cinema and leave a comment there on this very episode thread. It's August, which of course means only one thing to local cinephiles. It's time for the Melbourne International Film Festival. MIF is the largest and oldest film festival in the Southern Hemisphere. For 68 years, it has been warming the hearts of Melbourne cinema lovers, filling our screens each winter with a feast of films from around the world. Alongside the latest offerings from Cannes and the International Festival Circuit, MIF also sports the largest showcase of Australian cinema in the world. In 2019, MIF presented its largest program to date, boasting 259 features, including 44 straight from Cannes, 123 short films and 16 VR experiences. The program was the first from Al Cossa, the new artistic director who took over from Senses of Cinema's own Michelle Carey at the end of 2018. Alongside the films, since 2014, MIF has also been supporting new voices in film criticism, running their own critics training camp known as Critics Campus. 
Here to tell us a bit about that, we have Luke McCarthy, who is an alum of the 2019 campus. So, Luke, what were the films you think we should have seen this myth? Um, <laughs> that is a good question. Uh, I I hate to be the person who, who says that the film we should have seen is a is a 14-hour film, but there was a <laughs> I, I don't want to be that guy, but also um, this film called La Flor that I saw was the last film I saw. Um, it was, I think, the best film of the festival by far. It was just... I mean, it was 14 hours. It was broken up into three parts. Um, and I think when you think of a 14-hour film, you think of, like, two-hour shots of cows grazing and, and slow black and white. And, like, I'm totally here for that, but this is not that. It's it's 14 hours of, of story, and it is... Uh, it's just, I think, a celebration of storytelling, of genre, of of all the best parts of cinema. It's, like, broken up into six different parts um it begins with this like melodramatic uh horror film then goes into a musical comedy then goes into a five-hour crime b movie um and then like it just keeps on going and it's and it's really terrific it's got a great sense of humor um there's like little intermissions where the director comes in and apologizes for how long the film is throughout the film (laughs) um so yeah, I just like, I, I wanted to see it because I was like, I'm probably not going to see a 14 hour film in cinemas again. And, and I came out, it was broken up into three parts. So it wasn't like I had to ruin my life for it. But uh, Across a couple of days? or Three three days. Yeah. Which um, cinema? It played at the Kino. Okay. Well, at least you had comfortable seats. Yeah. I was yeah. very happy about that. Comfortable seats, much coffee. It was, it was great. It was kind of like a journey. You like walked in on the third day and everyone's like zombified looking at each <laughs> other like, oh, <laughs> You're here again. Um, but yeah, that that was, I would say, my favourite. I don't know when it'll play in Melbourne. Um, but, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, uh, that that's a challenge to, yeah. to get films like this in. My thinking is that, um, weirdly enough, a 14-hour film probably has a, a larger life mm-hmm. on um, streaming services yeah. and those kind of platforms. Will, movie will grab that one. I yeah. Think, I hope. Um, you know, it's a binge-watchable movie. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like it's it's if you sell it like it's a mini series because it's six episodes, it's it's totally watchable and like and bingeable. And after every of one of the sessions, I would look to my friend and be like, I could watch another four or five hours of this. Like it's just super wow. entertaining. Um, but apart from that, I really love Tommaso, which was the latest film from Abel Ferrara, who I'm a big Abel Ferrara fan. Um, I think enjoying it kind of. Depends on how much you're willing to let uh, an Italian American throw all his Catholic guilt on you for like two hours. <laughs> it's like it like just is that. Um, but I think no one hates themselves as productively as Abel Ferrara, and so <laughs> I just was like totally there for it. it. Was the first one I saw. I was like, oh great, this is like what I go to myth for. Um, I also really enjoyed The Dead Don't Die, the latest Jim Jarmusch film, which. That's the zombie one, right? That's the zombie one, which everyone seemed to hate, which I, it was, I mean, I kind of understand it. It's a, uh, it's, it's a kind of divisive film in that it's really blunt. Um, it's almost more deadpan than what you would expect from him. And because it's a genre film, it's like the, you know, it, in being so deadpan, it feels almost anti-genre. And so I think if you're going in expecting a zombie film, you're like, 
quite unhappy because it's almost a joke of a zombie film. Not that he is making fun of zombie film. It's clear that he loves them. It's just like it's a Jim Jarmusch zombie film. He's gonna he's gonna make it like two hours long and he's gonna throw as much jokes in as he can. Yeah. But yeah, that was terrific. Irina, how about yourself? Uh, what kind of films did you see? Do you have any recommendations? Well, I picked out a few that are all completely different, which is what Myth does, <laughs> right? The opportunity exactly. that you have only at Myth. I really enjoyed the new Almodovar film, Pain and Glory or Dolore Gloria. And it stars Antonio Banderas and Penelope Cruz, like most of his films. And I think it's interesting if you kind of juxtapose it to... Well, we just spoke about Tarantino's films. They're both the two grand masters at, you know, reaching maybe the end of their career. They both made a film that is incredibly self-referential, that is self-reflexive, that is a film about making films. But I enjoyed Almodovar's film. I thought it was amazing. It was smart. It was clever. It used you know, this mix of autobiographic details of animation on screen, on memory or fantasy, and it intertwined it all in one storyline that made a lot of sense. And it was bound together, I think, a lot by music. It was cinematically really well done, and it always went, it always goes between the two opposites, obviously like the title from Between Pain and Glory, Art and Sacrifice. It goes, it's about love and self-hate. It's about memory and the future and what can we do in the future without the memory it looks at drugs and excess and filmmaking and the pain of writing and yeah I just really really enjoyed it I think the actors are great in it I think it's got some really smart quotes thrown in so you now one of my favorite scenes is in one of the memories that um Salvador Mayo has when he was a little boy he's sitting at the um, the station with his mother and there's no train at night so they camp out at the station in Spain and talk about film and the little boy asks his mother while she is darning his socks saying do you think mom that Liz Taylor darns Robert Taylor's socks <laughs> and in the end of the film it turns out that that scene is actually staged to be filmed. Mm. So there are these references to the film itself and it develops and always at the point when I thought, okay, I've had enough of this now, there was a really clever move that connected it to something else, to another scene of the, si of the same film or to another time. So that was one of my favourites, actually. I think it's a really, really good one. And... Another film that I really enjoyed is the uh, German entry to the Oscars. It's called System Crasher or Systemsprenger by Nora Feinschild. And it stars a nine-year-old girl, which is amazing. And this girl is angry and she screams all the time. And it's about her not being able to contain that fury she feels and about society and her mother and all the adults around her not being able to deal with her despite everyone wanting to love her. So she's a lovable young girl. She crashes every system she's in. And yeah, I think I read an interview with Nora and she says, 
No, she feels that most girls are way too tame in films. So I love that it's a little girl. She wears pink, she's got blonde hair, she's got her hair tied up in little ponytails, and she screams, and she's angry, and she runs. And it's also, it's based on two years of research into so-called Systemsprenger, children that just can't be in the system. Wow. And about the social system around it. And I think it tells a really interesting story also about, you know, how society deals with children that don't fit the norm and that debate, do we put kids you know, on um, pharmaceutical, do we give them medicine to calm them down or is there other ways of dealing with it? Mm. And I guess the question, the girl loves her mother, the mother loves the girl, but it's just not enough. It just doesn't work. So... Yeah, I really enjoyed that film as well. And if I can also talk about a documentary. Sure. Oh, it wasn't a documentary, actually. I expected it to be a documentary. <laughs> but it's not, because the topic of the film is modern slavery. It's about the seafood industry in Thailand. And it's about you know, a young Cambodian boy who follows the temptation of money and finds himself caught up on a fishing trawler for three years, enslaved to the seafood industry. Oh. Mm. So it's a very dark topic that, you know, would lean itself to documentary, but it's not. It's a thriller. It's in Thai and Khmer. The cast is completely amateur actors. It's filmed on a trawler. It's filmed by an Australian filmmaker, actually. It was funded by the MIF Fund. And... For me, it's really int I found it interesting to watch because we often imagine Cambodia, Thailand through you know, a touristic, romanticized, idealizing lens. Mm -hmm. And that breaks to us that behind all of that is so much more and there's cruelty and there's slavery and globalization ties it all together. Yeah, so the film itself is very raw. What, what's that one called? Buoyancy. The film is called Buoyancy right. and it's by Rod Rathian. Wow. Yeah, it was followed up by a talk on Beyond Buoyancy, a panel discussion mm -hmm. that kind of delved a bit deeper into modern slavery, the Modern Slavery Act, um, about the seafood industry. And I think also in terms of MIF as a festival, it was one of the most effective combinations of a drama film with a panel discussion and art. Yeah. So on the panel was also a young Cambodian man called Vanak, who was himself himself enslaved for three years on a fishing trawler. And because he can't read or write, he paints. And to tell his story to his wife, to his village that nobody believed, he drew a book and wow. it was published and it formed the backdrop to the panel discussion. Mm -hmm. So I think all of you know those elements together. Yeah. And I mean, this is really... I guess the strength of festivals like MIF is moving beyond the films, moving beyond just mm -hmm. what they're screening, but bringing a whole range of different voices um, in. And certainly the Premier Fund, which you mentioned, which is MIF's own production fund, it's been running since around 2001, um, where they're putting money increasingly into uh, a number of films. Um, the cynic might say it helps to guarantee them their premieres. Um, but it certainly does play a big part and a lot of festivals are, are using these kind of production funds in really interesting ways to support um, cinema. 
certainly thinking about some of the Australian, um, because often that's where the uh, MIF Premier Fund mm-hmm. goes into, um, there were some really interesting titles that came out of the Australian showcase. Luke, did you happen to catch any of the Australian films? Um, I did catch a couple of Australian films, actually. I saw one film called Sequin in a Blue Room, which is, I think it's actually an afters graduate film. Mm. Um, it's by this young queer filmmaker called Samuel Van Grinsven. Um, and it is, it's really great. It's a, it's like very much a young gay man's film. It's a thriller kind of built around Grinder. It's really uh, articulate in showing, I think, gay lust in a way that I haven't seen in, in many Australian films. And I actually spoke to the director through Critics Campus this year and he was talking about how he was very inspired by the new queer cinema of the 90s, you know, like Gus Van Sant and um, Greg Araki. And so it really feels a piece with those films. And there's one scene in particular which is is basically like uh, a thriller sequence that builds tension and drama just out of someone looking at the grinder like screen and seeing someone getting closer to them because on grinder you can see how many meters away someone is from you um so i found that was just like a super interesting australian film that uh like as a young gay man i was like this is the kind of films i'd love to see more of there was also an australian film called dark place uh which was this horror anthology film um written and directed all by indigenous australian peoples um and that was really great just super consistent which is kind of shocking for a <laughs> for an anthology <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah. yeah um really great variety of different horror films within there and the final one was probably the most memorable it kind of reminded me of this film called zama that was at myth last year it's like a colonial comedy um where the two new settlers come to australia and basically through entirely their own idiocy find themselves killed um yeah (laughs) it's it's just yeah it's really i was really impressed with that and i would love to see more from any of the filmmakers who made those films yeah that's great i uh i also managed to catch a couple of the australian uh films probably my pick out of the ones that i saw was uh smoke between trees um this was a story about uh interaction between uh white and indigenous um people up, set up in the Blue Mountains up in New South Wales and it's the story of uh, a grandfather um, who when we kind of begin the story uh, we're encouraged to judge him as being racist as being um, a typical older white Australian male um, in a relatively small uh, town kind of environment and as the story unfolds, uh, his Indigenous, his Aboriginal grandson is dropped off at his door for him to look after. Um, he's also taking care of his wife who has dementia um, and he's interacting with uh, his grandson's grandmother, um, played by Ellie Chatfield, um, an Indigenous actor in her first lead role, um, and the kind of interaction between these two grandparents that's quite fractured and quite, um, not quite bitter, but very much a sort of a very tense relationship. And so we begin this film thinking, judging him um, based on sort of typical kind of 
as social issues in Australia around reconciliation with Indigenous uh, peoples. But as the story unfolds, there's more layers to it. There's more complications. Um, there's the death of his daughter and her um, partner who was Indigenous um, and the way that these two families sort of uh, almost came together and then became fractured and then there's a finding of self um, as the film progresses and um, it explores ideas of Indigenous identity but also explores how white characters sit alongside and interact with Indigenous characters in a really interesting and powerful way. So the director of that film um, was uh, Michael Joy, who is a white Australian man, but he undertook quite a lot of consultation with Indigenous elders. Um, there was a screening for Indigenous elders before the film was allowed out into the world, and so he got the tick of approval from um, the people he'd been collaborating with and working with, um, which I think is really quite an important thing for a story like this, to um, where it is a white man telling a story that's dealing with Indigenous identity for that to have been quite a consultative yeah. process. Yeah. Um, but it is a really powerful film and I, I highly recommend it. Fantastic. And Luke, you were in the Critics Campus this year. I was. So do you want to explain what that Criti Critics Campus is and what you ended up doing as part of the, the crew for this year? Um, so Critics Campus is kind of like a way for Myth to... I guess the idea is to foster new voices in criticism. You send in a few pieces of your writing um, and they select eight people. Uh, the eight of you attend kind of like a five-day workshop schooling period where you meet up every day. You spend three hours with a mentor who is a critic who's currently writing, making media, etc. Um, and then after that, you attend different lectures from different industry people, whether that be, you know, editors, whether that be... Um, writers themselves, even your own mentors are in these lectures. Um, so I got very lucky this year. Um, my mentor was Chaos and Collins, who is formerly of The Ringer and now writes for Vanity Fair. Um, and it's just, I guess, a five-day period of learning about... I mean, everyone there, everyone is a great writer, probably a better writer than me, but it's about taking all the... When you're a good writer, I think you need to, when writing published criticism, work out how to turn your ideas into great writing and how to kind of mould them into something that readers want to hear. And, and I think through attending all these like lectures and workshops and talking to someone like Chaos and Collins, it really helped me to clarify how to turn a thought or an interpretation or an idea into a clear thought right. and like... Uh, yeah, it just taught me a lot about how I watch movies and how to write about them. And uh, how many sleepless nights did you have as you went to watch <laughs> a film and had to turn out coffee straight after? Way too many. My coffee intake went from like one a day comfortably to three. Um, so I'm still coming down from that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Miff isn't about getting any sleep. No, it's not at all. <laughs> no, you got to embrace it. Yeah. Well, if you saw any films that you want to let us know about at this year's MIF, head over to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Senses of Cinema. Here at Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe. 
highlighting films from the past and the present to bring exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition, so we've now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the costs of keeping Senses of Cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. And if you're to subscribe at the higher level, you get all of the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast so you don't have to be interrupted by me every single month. Plus, you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Senses of Cinema. That means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Senses, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work they all do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Senses of Cinema, visit sensesofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link, and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring the journal to you throughout your film year. Following on from our MIFF discussion, the opening night film, I believe, was in fact uh, a film called The Australian Dream, a documentary directed by Daniel Gordon. Uh, It is one of two documentaries on the same topic to address the attacks on Indigenous AFL star Adam Goods. In the early 2010s, Adam Goods was one of the most prominent, well-respected AFL players in the country. He had two Brownlow medals for those people outside Australia. It's like the highest accolade you can get in this particular sport. And he was also a role model for Indigenous people across the country. But when Goods drew the line at a 13-year-old girl calling him an ape um, while he was actually on the field playing, events spiralled out out of control and saw Goods booed at every opportunity, at every match, until it finally actually drove him from the game. The final quarter tells the story purely through the media, the media responses, the media backlash, the commentary... And The Australian Dream, the other documentary on this issue, focuses more intently on the personal impact on goods and the Aboriginal community. Both, I think, are incredibly powerful films targeting a recent and kind of shameful display of racist hatred against one of our greatest Australians. Um, You know, I say right up front, um, I don't watch or follow football particularly anymore. I used to be a big fan and, and... don't follow as much, but I certainly was aware of the abuse that that Goods was copying. And this is only, what, maybe four years ago that this was occurring. Kirsten, how did you find these documentaries? Well, I was lucky enough to see The Australian Dream at the opening night um, for MIFF. And that was really quite a powerful presentation of the film. Um, I saw the final quarter after seeing that, but certainly The Australian Dream at the opening night... Uh, We had uh, Adam Goods in the audience, along with his family. We had the director there, Daniel Gordon, and um, also Stan Grant, who wrote uh, the treatment and script for for the uh, Australian Dream documentary. And it was an incredibly powerful presentation. The crowd was very, very vocal um, in watching this film. It really tells the story, and I think part of the power of this was having Daniel Gordon as the director. So Daniel Gordon is a British director um, who was brought in um, onto the project, I believe, by Stan Grant. And I think having the outsider tell the story was very, very powerful. It was an uncomfortable film, and as an Australian, I am an AFL fan. Um, I didn't go along to any of the games. I don't get... Uh, to watch them live all that often, but 
Um, so I wasn't there during the booing, but it was, that was the story for about two seasons, um, just every game. And the, the way that the media responded to it, which is powerfully told through the final quarter, just watching all of this media coverage come back up on the screen. Um, I mean, that, I was very aware of that, but really what the Australian dream does as a film is takes you into Goods's mental state far more. And hearing from a range of other former players, um, key Indigenous athletes, so Nova Paris and people like that, um, it does an amazing job of translating what I thought I knew about the situation from having watched the um, media coverage and not being an idiot and not being someone who thought that that was okay. Um, you know, I thought I had a grasp on the situation, but what the Australian dream was really confront you with, no, what you think you know is not half of the story of what he actually went through. And it was incredibly powerful. Um, and yeah, the audience were booing any time that Andrew Bolt came on screen. Oh, which... yeah. I have to say, I, I watched the Australian dream yesterday and every time that man came on, like you just want to leap out of your seat and punch the screen. Yep. Um, for people who aren't aware, Admiral Bold is one of those kind of obnoxious, conservative kind of commentators who's convinced that, you know, women are witches and, you know, you know, racist abuse is fine and you shouldn't be upset about it. He's, he's that guy. Um, and, you know, that is one of the things that, that drove me wild and it's rare for me to feel so violent you know, when you see this man standing up saying, well, you know, isn't it terrible what he's done to a 13-year-old girl? And, you know, get a thicker skin. Like, actually, fuck off, you absolute plonker. I cannot bear you to be in front of my face for one more second. And I thought, Luke, I, yeah. I did think it was incredible that he he came on, a, he was a, as opposed to the final quarter, which is just purely yes. archival footage, yes. things that already appeared on the media. I mean, Andrew Bock came on to be interviewed for the Australian Dream, so he's just so clueless about... He's so convinced that he's right, though, yeah. because he's so convinced as, as you know, a man um, of a certain age um, and of a certain kind of conservative disposition, he's so convinced that, that we're crazy, that, you know, the, as I suggested at the, the beginning, it does start the ball rolling when a, a, he uh, Adam Goods goes to the... the sort of the border where the crowd is very close to get the ball and this 13-year-old girl who is sitting with her grandmother and a couple of other kids calls him an ape. Um, and Goods calls out the girl, has her removed by security, and then in the next day says, look, we shouldn't be attacking this girl. She's 13. I think it's just worth recognising that we sort of can't put up with this stuff but the girl isn't to blame. It's a kind of culture or a world that she's been brought up in that is going to produce that. And the fact that he actively, Goods actively says, protect the girl, and then Bolt takes it, he has attacked this girl. This girl is being abused. He is a child abuser. And that that is the narrative that is taken up and not Goods' very reasonable response just is so infuriating. Luke, I know you saw this too. How did you respond? Um, pretty much the exact same way as you. I think I actually really, I appreciated as much as I hated seeing Andrew Bolt on screen that you had people like Andrew Bolt, Eddie Maguire there being interviewed. Cause I mean, 
it kind of just it kind of just hangs them out to dry the film yep. and, and seeing I think their perspective put forth against people like Adam Good and Stan Grant speaking it really clarifies for anyone in the audience who has any questions just how bad faith every argument Andrew Bolt and Eddie McGuire kind of put forth are mm. um, and I agree that like like the footage of Adam Goods he's such a humble well-spoken soft-spoken I think kind person I think if you've been racially vilified the strength it takes for you to then ask for forgiveness for the for the person who's racially vilified you that that's such a bold and strong thing to do and not many people have that strength and then for someone like Andrew Bolt to in bad faith completely disregard that and 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 turn it into an argument about a man yelling at a child it, it just I mean it just illustrates how terrible of a human being Andrew Bolt is and how terrific of a, an Australian Adam Goods is it's such an uh kind of such a bizarre story in that I mean you you look at it and I, I can't even get my brain around the opposite view you've got a man who is um, as you say like an intelligent kind of well-spoken considerate human being and that he is somehow through the media and I think the the final quarter really leans into this it you know, as you've said Kirsten it's only relying on archival footage stuff that's on already been on the media there are no interviews with anybody at all um and that concentration on the media's like furious attack on a man who says actually maybe we shouldn't be racist and you know mm -hmm. i shouldn't be called an ape and all of these other kind of horrible despicable things that he's abused for that he stands up and says i think we need to draw a line on that mm -hmm. and then as a no, obviously not as an entire nation, but a section of the nation says, actually, you need to shut up and stop telling us what we can do, is so horrifying. And I think that's the power of both of these films to highlight this idea where, you know, there are pockets in somewhere like Australia where we are a multicultural nation and we sort of have this impression of, you know, politicians use it all the time. You know, we're about, you know, the fair go. We're always about, you know, doing the right thing by people. But this is the example where I think it's it's brought out beautifully in both films. We'll take on the kind of multicultural elements as long as you don't speak. If you speak up, yeah, no, we're not going to put up with that. And it's the, the crushing of the voice that holds the mirror up to the uglier parts of our society um, that gets shouted down. And it's just, I, I found both films um, kind of incredibly moving and I was infuriated by both of them. Yeah, I mean... Uh, thinking stylistically and technically about these two as different films, I mean, yeah. there's incredible, of course, there's cred incredible similarities in the structuring. Um, you have the build-up, the um, sort of introducing goods as this incredible footballer, um, Australian of the year, um, to boot, and then you have that turning point of the the comment by the 13-year-old girl. Um what I found, though, was that, and perhaps because I was watching the final quarter as a television documentary um, with little interludes from um, Waleed Ali from The Project, which is a sort of news panel kind of program here in Australia, um, there was just something about the final quarter that didn't carry quite the same punch as um, the Australian dream for me. And... I think as well what was furiating about um, 
the final quarter was that the journalistic approaches, there were, there were voices who were trying to speak reason and they were just getting drowned out by, and there was something infuriating just sitting there watching people like Sam Newman. Mm. Um, <laughs> just in general watching yeah. Sam Newman. Just in general, yeah. but, you know, seeing him just week after week after week, yep. um, you know, put the boot into Adam Goods, trying to justify his own position. Um, but I think as well that what the Australian dream does, particularly through um, some of the speeches by Stan Grant and going out onto country with goods towards the end, mm-hmm. um, neither of them, it's, it's not a story that has a happy ending. It's not a story that has that moment where you do have that moment where the Australian um, football going public turn around and start going, we support Adam Goods, and you have an end to the booing and you have a kind of consensus that enough is enough and we're going to move past this. But it doesn't end happily for Goods. He leaves. He can't go back to that sport. He has to... And um, it's one of the most devastating things about that, particularly where, and and yeah, I mean, you're right, these films are, are the same, but, but very different. You know, you walk out of the final quarter just like hating the media, hating the platforms of, for hatred, like mm-hmm. Sam Newman, what a reprehensible pile of media shit he is. <laughs> he can, he can get fucked too, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, he literally, once you, you see some of this footage, he kind of puts blackface on because that's hilarious. This is the standard of comedy from that plonker. Um, but I actually found because that the final quarter doesn't have access to goods, who is such a great speaker and in particular access to Stan Grant, who is media savvy, used to presenting, used to speaking to camera. Stan Grant is a friggin' hero as well. Mm. I actually found the the kind of the the build up from both of their voices by the time we get to the end. Like, how lame is this? Mark almost cried in a documentary about football, but at the point where he does leave and puts his feet into country, I I was so <laughs> moved by that. I was like completely sort of welling up. Like, I'm watching a man put his feet into dirt. And this means so much to me that I almost can't bear it. But but as you say, the the outcome of that for goods is that he now doesn't even watch football. That that the Australian dream has this kind of incredible hope and this kind of sense of restoration. Mm. And at the same time, he's done with football forever. He won't even watch it, which is such a kind of horrifying outcome. Yeah, especially because what you you learn through the Australian dream is just what becoming part of a football team meant for goods as he was coming through as a young adult as well. Um, You know, it had a powerful sense of creating a space of belonging and sense of family for him once he sort of found his rhythm with different teams. And so, you know, the loss of that because of the actions of the Australian public is just, it's devastating. I think it'll be really interesting. We this, These films have incredible resonance in Australia. Whether you follow football or not, it, it's just part of the culture, particularly here in Melbourne. You cannot escape football in Melbourne. Mm. Um, so these films have quite a lot of poignancy here. I'm really interested in the fact that The Australian Dream is going to be opening at TIFF Me in September. Too. 
Um, you know, you've got the British director who's already bringing a bit of an outside perspective and, you know, rightly so, he's very condemning of mm-hmm. how Australia reacted. The fact that our first response when confronted with an Indigenous man being proud of his culture and standing up to racial vilification was to go, oh, well, it wasn't me. Oh, no, no, I'm not racist. I'm not, I'm not like that. That's yeah. other people. No, no, I wasn't booing because mm-hmm. I'm yeah. racist. I'm booing because everyone else was and that's, that's fine. Yeah. Um, we're incredibly defensive as a country when we get um, yeah. accused okay. of being racist and we are. Yep. We are a very racist country and that's not, I'm not saying that to necessarily just have a go at Australia, but it's also, we, we need to wake up to this if we're ever going to change. Mm-hmm. So the film going out to somewhere like Toronto, um, it's going to be really interesting to see how audiences respond there. I mean, at the opening for MIF, um, Stan Grant, uh, Daniel Gordon and Adam Goods were applauded out of the room. You yep. know, there was a standing ovation at the end of the film. No one would sit down or stop clapping until they exited. Yep. Um, It'll be interesting to see what the reception is in Toronto and it'll be interesting to see how international audiences respond to what is quite a harsh look at Australia. Yeah. I think one of the the great advantages of the Australian dream too is because you do have the outsider making it, it's also made for people who don't know what AFL is. And that's, I think, one of the great powers of that film. It sort of explains like... This is what happens. Here's where the crowd sits. You know, this is how all of this works. Here are the main players. So that it's, you know, in some ways, for those of us who are very familiar with it, some of it feels a bit reductive. You know, we're already talking about as soon as Eddie Maguire comes on, I'm like, (laughs) I'm about to hurl. Um, But, you know, that isn't going to be the reaction for, for people elsewhere who will see Eddie Maguire and think, oh, well, here's a guy and he's saying some nice things. And the sucker punch when you realise mm. that Eddie Maguire compares Adam Goods to King Kong um, is going to knock people sideways because, mm. yeah, this is this is the sort of uh, verbiage that was going on around this man during that time. I think internationally I'm really hopeful that this um, gets a foothold. Yeah, I mean, it's always... And I think you're right in that how well it explains AFL to a non-Australian audience is going to be key in that, um, you know, Hopefully, they're not going to be put off by the fact that it's a very local sport, mm. a lo- very local story. Yeah. It has international resonance. Absolutely, it does. I think it does. Like, yeah. just jumping in, I think, you know, the core of it, that sport is a platform where society, where societal issues play out and f- are crystallized and focused on. I think that's a global story. Mm-hmm. Like, the German football team had a similar, you know, racism story last Uh year against Turkish Germans and it played out in soccer that's at the heart of the German football landscape. Mm -hmm. So I think... And certainly the recent um, Mm -hmm. taking of a knee during the um, American national anthem. So, you know, this is not... It's not a purely Australian issue. It's set, you know, in a local, purely Australian atmosphere and context, but I think the heart of it translates because it's a global issue. Yeah. And I think, like... A thing that I think universally applies within the Australian dream is is that idea that, and by using the media so much in the film, it really gets this across that civility and saying the right thing and being polite uh, are really easy ways to downplay very real issues going on in the world. Um, like the fact that Adam Goods told a 13-year-old to be escorted out 
gave everyone a platform to utilize quote unquote civility to say he was in the wrong, um, regardless of whether morally he was right. Um, and I think just seeing how people like Andrew Bolt frame things, it continually shows to you just how how language and politeness can be really toxic ways yeah. to tell people off even when they're saying the right things and standing up for themselves. Um, and yeah, I kind of hope that in going internationally, um, more people's eyes are on Australia because there's so much we haven't done, like reparations, education. It's, it's all issues that I think other countries talk about a lot. Um, that we just don't discuss. And, we, and we rely on kind of mateship and fairness mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of that, this myth that we engage with that we love and is in many ways very true, but is not universal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, any decent country criticises itself when it deserves it. And, you know, don't be criticising the criticisers. You've, you've got to... A, a healthy country is one that recognises its errors and tries to address those errors. Mm-hmm. And I think The Australian Dream is one of the films that forces us into a position where we have to confront it. And the more people that see it, the happier I'm going to be. There was actually another great film that played at MIF called In My Blood It Runs, which uh, is about a young Indigenous uh, person in, I think, the Northern Territory. And it just it shows how he goes through the education system and how the education system is completely completely at odds with our indigenous population and our indigenous peoples and it's just like an i think alongside the australian dream felt like there's a lot of films coming out now that are really unpacking and dealing with our horrific treatment of our indigenous peoples yeah and you know my final word is you know there's a a whole section on the film about a, a kind of dance move essentially that adam <laughs> goods does on the on the field um i think everybody internationally knows the haka which is the kind of new zealand version of it i want to see that war dance yeah. on every friggin every match because it is glorious to watch i find that exciting moving and tremendous to look at a celebration of our heritage mm-hmm. the fact that that act was vilified also I mean, it, that beggar's belief when you celebrate the haka, we all look at the haka and say, why can't we have something like that? Oh. Well, we do. Um, and when we did it, that's too aggressive. That the reaction to that, oh, he was throwing an invisible spear at the supporters. Yes. And I've got oh, an invisible goodness. wound. Like, are you an invisible idiot? Yeah. Like, honestly. People are like offended by something they would have never heard about before he'd done that. Yeah. And then they're all of a sudden like, how could you do this thing that I just discovered existed yeah. yesterday? Oh, that, I like, have to say, how can you argue that? In the yeah. final quarter, watching Dermot Brereton, a white man, talk about why Indigenous people do a war dance. They're going, really? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I feel you're yes. not the yeah. best person to yes. be speaking on this topic. Yes, when I think expert on Indigenous issues, I think a football commentator. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it, it is coming, hopefully, internationally, certainly at TIFF um, in the coming months. Um if it arrives in your territory by absolute means necessary, go and see it. I think it's an incredible film with a really important and interesting story to tell. So if you've got anything to add to our discussion on the Australian dream, by all means head to um, facebook.com slash senses of cinema and add to our discussion there. Senses of cinema has some exciting news. We've broken out of our digital bonds and put out a print book. 
100 Years of Soviet Cinema presents an augmented version of the Senses of Cinema dossier released in 2017 to mark the centenary of the October 1917 Russian Revolution. Collecting more than 60 articles on Soviet and post-Soviet films arranged in chronological order, it represents the first collaboration between Senses of Cinema and Leader Tapes organisation. You can purchase the book in hardcover and paperback through the Senses of Cinema website. Just go to sensesofcinema.com forward slash shop. Each month, your hosts here at Senses of Cinema share with you a highlight from the current month, whether it's a film, television show or some other kind of screen media that has caught our attention. We share with you material that has resonated with us and that we hope you might find meaningful. There's been a lot of things going on over the last month in Melbourne and online as ever, so I'm sure we'll all have a lot to talk about. What caught your attention lately, Mark? Well, my recommendation is for something that I'm going to talk about a little bit more in the bonus segment. So if you're not a patron, go and sign up and become a patron and you can hear what I actually really, really think about this Mm -hmm. film. Uh, But for the bonus, we are looking at the life and career of Peter Fonda, who of course died um, this month. Uh, And in prep for the bonus segment today, I sat down and watched one of his films that I had never heard of and did not know anything about, and it's called The Hired Hand. Um, It is a film from 1973. He is the actor in it. He's also the director. Uh, And I did not know that Peter Fonda was a director, and now I'm quite taken with his directorial style. Um, It is, like I found it, it's a fairly crappy copy. It's up on YouTube, uh, and it runs for about 90 minutes. It's a Western, um, basically tells the story of his... Uh, journey back to his wife, who's, who he's basically abandoned for seven years to hang out with Warren Oates. Um, and then ultimately kind of he is drawn back into the kind of the some of the nefarious activities that they've got up to in the past. I found it kind of this incredibly beautiful. It's like art cinema. So um, very slow, very quiet with sort of this incredible, astonishing visual style that I was really taken with. I'll talk about it more in the bonus. Um but just as a little tip, even though it's a crappy copy, chase it down on YouTube, probably up there illegally, so don't, so I didn't tell you about it. Um, but I would really encourage people to, to check out The Hired Hand, um, a really tremendous, beautiful, slow, um, fantastic film to check out. Luke? Um, I guess on Wednesday I went to Cinematheque and they're currently doing an Elaine May season. Hey, uh, I got so things to say. <laughs> I saw The Heartbreak Kid for the first time. It's this 1970s comedy about a guy who marries a woman and they seem to be somewhat in love and within about 3 days he meets a new young blonde who he decides he wants to marry instead. And so it's it's kind of this comedy about a guy complete schmuck, total asshole who on his honeymoon with his wife is trying to find a way to leave his wife for this new young woman. And it's basically like, I, I guess it's like the graduate, but way more acidic, uh, way more, there's no like sad songs about our lead character watching women. It's just like you watch him be a complete asshole, but he is so funny. It's hilarious. Like Elaine May's sense of, of comedy and rhythm and timing. It's, it's like, you're watching improvisation, but with the punchlines of a great sitcom, it, it just is at you all the time. It's so funny. Um, and yeah, I just, it was probably the funniest film I've seen in a couple of years. Um, and I thought 
also just as an indictment of kind of maleness and this kind of toxic idea of of I can get what I want in spite of the people I'm going to hurt getting it. it. It was a really kind of like great takedown of, of that mentality and, and just so funny. And the in terms of availability, not super available anywhere, but like Mark's film, it is available on YouTube, perhaps illegally. You can watch it. <laughs> I would highly recommend. And I would also recommend, having had you bring up Elaine May, I'm going to throw in a plug um, <laughs> right here and now. So well chosen, Luke, um, that in fact in a couple of months, I think it comes out in October, uh, there is going to be a book uh, that is edited by Alexandra Heller Nicholas, who used to be an editor at Censors, and Dean Brandom, um, which is a, a book that looks closely at the life and career of Elaine May and includes chapters on The Heartbreak Kid. And maybe somebody with my name might have written one of the, the chapters, in fact, the very opening one, which is all about her um, career as a, a stand-up uh, kind of sketch comedian with Mike Nichols, the director of The Graduate, and the kind of trajectory that led them from kind of stand-up improv theatre and sent them both down the path of um, direction. Um, so that comes out in October. It's called, uh, it's in the Refocus collection, the films of Elaine May. Um, so you should buy that. I won't get rich off it though, um, but you should uh, look out for it in October. Irina, what is your recommendation for August? Well, I'll recommend a documentary. So nothing mm. about toxic masculinity <laughs> or anything more and nice, heartwarming, escapist documentary made by two filmmakers from Australia, New Zealand, Fergus Grady and Noel Smith. It's their debut documentary and they follow or walk 800 kilometres with six pilgrims. They walk the Camino de Santiago in Spain. Right. So the old pilgrimage walk through Europe that's been you know, become very popular and commodified, some would say. But the six people they collected fly over from Australia, New Zealand to overcome each their own a quite traumatic situation they find themselves in to overcome grief and they walk together, they form a community, they help each other. So it's really a story, not only about you know, the power maybe of walking, the power of going overseas to find yourself if you want to be a bit eat, pray, love, but <laughs> it's the story about six very different people who find themselves, help themselves, it's humanity, it's Sad, but it's hopeful. Beautiful. What's it called again? Sorry. It's called Camino Skies. Oh, that sounds wonderful. And Kirsten? I'm going to continue the trend with moving away from toxic masculinity and um, debut uh, features as well. Uh, I'm going to say watch this space for Ride Like a Girl, which is oh, yeah. the uh, debut feature by Rachel Griffiths. Um, telling the true story of Michelle Payne, who was the first woman to win the uh, first woman jockey to win the Melbourne Cup, um, which is a really big, important horse race yeah, here like the in Kentucky Melbourne. Derby or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, there's this is a family film. It's a very enjoyable film. Um, it's certainly not breaking any ground in terms of being out there sort of stylistically perhaps, but it's an enjoyable story. It's well told. And I think it's, I guess, in contrast to um, something like the Australian dream, uh, it does offer a more hopeful kind of look at 
the sporting world in Australia. Um, certainly it's been funded by uh, people to do with racing, so it's not going to take overly critical. If you're looking for a hard-hitting expose on the racing industry in Australia, this is not going to be it. Um, but it does have, you know, those wonderful tropes of a uh, um, female sports person overcoming biases and prejudice within her industry, within her sport, um, to take out what is the highest racing honour in Australia. And it's just an enjoyable film, so it's one to sort of sit back and I believe it's coming out uh, in cinemas in Australia on the 22nd of September. Yeah, I'm pretty keen to see that too. Um, Rachel Griffiths is, I mean, obviously we all know her as the actor from, you know, Muir's Wedding through to, you know, Brothers and Sisters and a lot of um, TV, Six Feet Under. Um, but she's got some great shorts as well. There's one that she did that is called Roundabout, is my memory. And I, I think, you know, I remember seeing a couple of her shorts and thinking, this is somebody who's going to be an amazing director. So I'm really super keen to check out Ride Like a Girl. I think it'll be incredible. Well, thanks for joining us this month on the Senses of Cinema podcast and thanks to Arena and to Luke for joining Kirsten and I um, and adding your wonderful insight into all things film and myth. Um, much appreciated. Thanks also to our wonderful, incredible technical producer, the brilliant Troy Morey, who is our very own mamas and the puppas um, to our version of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, makes everything better and sound more wonderful. Uh, thanks also to Swinburne University for the use of their recording studio here in beautiful Hawthorne, Melbourne. I am Mark Freeman, and thanks for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast, and we'll speak with you again next month. Mm-hmm.